Hello. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allows you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Take your Bibles with me and open to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Matthew 1. Um, I'm super, super excited to be able to preach um, this morning to you. And uh, I know that, that may sound weird. Don't you, aren't you excited every week? Yeah, I, I am excited every week, but I tell you, it's... It is a privilege, it really is a privilege, and it's an honor to dig into the Word. And as I dug into the Word and uh, was preparing this message, like, I just, there's so much. I, I was showing Lene last, last night um, because I knew she was doing the slides for me in the back. And, and I said, I have all, I have three pages, which on a normal Sunday, I only have one page that I bring up front with me. Um, because I, for me, it's simpler, the better. Um, but this morning I have three. And so I'm going to try to dig in and go, and we may go pretty fast, and I might not dig into every area as deep as maybe you would like. Um, but as we think about this year and our Christmas theme of the incarnation of the becoming flesh that God became flesh, uh, we're going to look at one of those titles that Jesus was given and, and, and when we look at that and when we hear that, oftentimes we can just gloss over it. We've actually sung about it a couple times in a couple of our songs about the authority, about the kingship of who Jesus is. But this morning we want to look and we want to think about royalty. Why was it important that God would come as a man? And that, that aspect that we will look at today is about the royalty, the king the promise of the king, and why is it important that there is a king of the flesh, of man, that God would send Jesus to be flesh for us? Is that important? Why couldn't God just rule us like he did in the Old Testament? And maybe he would have some preachers or some prophets. Why would he need to continue and come back to have a king? Well, it's critical, and we're going to look at some of that in the word this morning and uh, I'm excited to do that. Before we dig in, though, I just wanted to say a quick thank you. Thank you for all of you who came and helped decorate and helped put, uh, put up our decorations and, and gave your time and energy and effort. I just want to also thank you for being here. I know these are difficult days, and thank you for those who are online streaming with us. I can't tell you how critical and how important it is that we continue to gather, whether that's online and listening or in person, that we continue to gather safely in a way, in a manner that protects one another, um, but that we enjoy one another and the fellowship and, and the coming and centering around the word of God. Um, this is not the first pandemic ever in the world. It is the first that we're dealing with, but it is not the first nor will it probably be the last. There will be other diseases and difficulties, famines. Uh, there'll be abuses of power to come um, until Jesus comes to rule as who? As king. Why is that important? Well, we're going to look at that this morning. So Matthew, uh, we start off in Matthew and royalty of a king. We see um, the, the story of Jesus's birth is recorded in two of the Gospels in, in a little bit more detail. Mark doesn't really 
really begin with the, the story of Jesus' birth. And John gives um, a, a heavenly view of Jesus and coming as the word and as the light. And so Matthew and Luke give us a little bit more detail and insight into the coming of Jesus, God becoming man, being born. And so let's look at that, if, if you would, in Matthew 1, and then we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. Um, Matthew starts with a genealogy. And so Matthew 1.1, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And this word is critical and important. Don't look past this word. The word Christ, meaning king, meaning Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the king. And we're going to look a little bit more about that word in just a moment, the, the term Messiah. But Matthew starts his, his book the gospel he writes begins with this, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the King, Jesus the Messiah. And then he uses this phrase, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he'll walk through that line from Abraham all the way down um, to Joseph. And so it shows us the lineage and, and, and the background, the genealogy of where Jesus the physical Jesus came from, all right? And so as we look at this, we see in Matthew 1, verses 17 and 18, it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the, what's the term there? Used for Jesus, Christ, the Messiah, the King, so 14 generations. So we have 42 generations in all from Abraham to the Christ. And so when we look at the genealogy here that's laid before us in Matthew, um, we see that uh, Matthew focuses on more of Joseph's line um, to David's throne. And we're going to continue to look at David. He is one of the most critical um, people that we will read, that we will, we have the opportunity to read about in the Bible. Besides Jesus, David is mentioned the most in the scriptures. So when we see that and we take note of that, that means he's pretty critical and important. Luke, when we flip over to Luke, Luke chapter three, we see Luke is going to take a little bit different perspective as he approaches um, the birth of Jesus. And actually, we'll start in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, what? Christ the Lord. Notice, though, that he is born in the city of David. Again, as the writers are writing this, they're not making mistakes. They're not just randomly choosing uh, information. It's critical as we look at the, the information that we have recorded for us to be able to try to piece it together. It, it paints a picture. And so Jesus' royalty as king is critical to his incarnation. Luke shows us Mary's line. Now, there's some debate about this. There's debate from, uh, from great scholars who love the Lord uh, about how this looks. Because in Luke chapter 3, flip over a page, um, verses 23 um, to 38, we see 
Luke writes a genealogy. Well, that genealogy isn't the same as what we read in Matthew. And there's some debate among scholars about um, Joseph and maybe Joseph, um, his uh, father, his biological father, uh, and maybe the father um, um, that passed away, that would have been his legal father. And so they split that and maybe... Um, maybe Matthew covers one father, and as he passed away, um, he would be uh, Joseph's legal father. And then Luke is covering his biological father, who Luke, um, Joseph would have been born under. Um, that's one way of looking at it. I would like to propose that I, I believe that Luke is writing from Mary's perspective and her lineage. And so um, when we look at this, it's not going to, Luke isn't going to mention um, the women that Matthew mentions. He is going to very quickly just walk through the lineage of, I believe, of Mary. And what this does is um, this shows that not only through Joseph, who people assumed that he was the father at that time, we know that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. He was the physical form dad who took care of him, who provided for him and the family. But Mary was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph was not the father of Jesus. And so I believe that's why Luke records here for us Mary's lineage that goes back to who? David. That is critical, important, because David then, or Jesus has the right to be the king because of his lineage through David's line. And we're going to look at some of that. Through David's line comes the king, the promised king. All right. And so if you argue, well, it's Joseph. Well, Joseph wasn't really his father. Then you look at Mary's line and you say, oh, well, he still has the right to the throne of David because of Mary's lineage and because he was born uh, from a woman. What's interesting as we look at this, and I won't spend too much time on this, but notice verse 38, Luke 3.38. Um, Luke, Dr. Luke records for us this whole lineage, and then he comes to, not only does he go to David, but then he goes to Ad, Abraham, but then he goes to Adam. And verse 38, he finishes it this way, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I circled that because I never noticed that before. You ever, you ever have those light bulbs where you're reading the word and it's like, wow. Do you know that Adam is called the son of God? Do you know what we're called? Jesus came so that we might be called what? The children of God. That we would be the sons of God. Like you think back to the garden and Adam. Yes, God made him and formed him and breathed to him the breath of life. And that was God's son. He made him. And we have that great privilege too, even though we're generations away from the garden and we're so flawed by sin that the coming son of God, God in flesh would come to deliver us that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world, that we could be called the children of God. What a privilege. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word. I'm looking at Emmy. She could probably say it better than me. 
Mashka, Mashiach. What is it? Mashiach. It means this, anointed or anointed one. Really, what it's talking about is royalty, all right, the king. So the Messiah, anywhere you see Christ or the word Messiah, it means anointed or anointed one. It's talking about oil being poured upon so as to signify and to set apart for God's purposes. Let's look a little bit about this in the Old Testament. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Uh, these will be up there as best as Lene can follow me. But we're going to start in Exodus chapter 30. And we're going to see this uh, about the very beginning when Moses is, is talking to God and God gives Moses instruction about the tent, the tabernacle, and the ark and, uh, and what needs to happen. And so we see in the book of Exodus chapter 30, Here's the layout, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling sweet cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as a perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil, and with it you shall anoint the tent of the meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings, with all of its utensils, and the basin, and its stand, and you shall consecrate them, and they shall be most holy." What we see here is the anointing of these items because this was where Jesus or where God, the Father, where God was going to come and meet with his people. And so it needed to be a holy place with holy instruments. And so these were items that were distinct. They were set apart from all the other instruments and they were done by an anointing. And so we see this not only uh, with these items and with this tent, but we also will see it now with the king. So we know that Israel was demanding that the prophets weren't good enough. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And so in their quest for a king, um, the prophet Samuel um, talks to the Lord and God reveals to Samuel who the king will be. And we know that as Saul. So 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 1, we see that Samuel takes a flask of oil and pours it on Saul's head. He poured it on his head and he kissed him and he said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you shall save and you will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Here's the sign. He's got oil being poured over him. He's anointed. Saul is the first king of Israel being anointed with oil and fragrance. Now up until that point, remember what the, what the anointing, what was being anointed? It was generally the, the items that were being anointed. 
now we see the king is being set apart. We know the story of Saul and his failures, his lack of looking to God for guidance and his lack of patience and waiting. And so God strips that title as king from him. But yet there is another king that God will raise up. And we see this in 1 Samuel 16. So in 1 Samuel 16, we see Samuel, who Samuel is um, probably pretty discouraged because here he saw the hand of God and he was part of this anointing, this setting apart Saul as the king of Israel. Um, that was stripped from, from Saul and Samuel is left at the end of his life. Uh, he's left with probably, he's, he's greatly discouraged and, and thinking what is going to happen to God's people. So the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, if you flip down to verse 13, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. We see the connection. We start to see the connection here of David's significance, even in the description as, as our writer here in 1 Samuel tells us that there will be from Jesse. And where is Jesse from? He's from Bethlehem. We know the story on the other side where Jesus is born. Where is Jesus born? In? Okay, so we're lining these things up because it is critical as we think about David and where David is born and where he comes from, his heritage, his background, because he is now set aside as a great king. He's been anointed it's clear that the, not only has the anointing taken place, but the, the word tells us there that the spirit rushed upon David. God's hand is upon David, and we will see, as you read throughout the text, you will continue to see God's blessing in his hand leading and directing and guiding King David. Now, we don't see a whole lot of anointing with oil today, right? We, don't, we just don't see that, but um, I don't, I'm not... I'm not pushing this program. I'm just using it as a reference. Maybe you've watched the show The Crown, okay? I'm not endorsing it. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. It is what it is. There's a show that talks about the heritage of England and the crown of England and how it's passed down through the generations. One of the really cool things that we have, even today, we have some, some footage of when Queen Elizabeth II was, uh, was coronated. The service uh, was immaculate and it was precise. And her coronation was the first one that was ever televised. And actually, if you do a little bit of reading, you realize uh, that there were some, um, some people who were sharply against that because they believed it was so sacred that it shouldn't be put uh, on the public view. And so you take that for, like, digest that and how we think of sacred today. Um, what I want to show you, though, is from June 2nd, 1953, um, there, there's, a, there's a video um, that shows this process of Queen Elizabeth and, and her being anointed as king. 
And what's interesting, as, as we'll watch it in just a moment, we actually won't be able to see the actual anointing because they believed that it was so sacred and so, so important that it was not going to be televised. And in fact, most people, you can't even see it. And, and you're going to see why here in a minute. So I'll, let's play it, and then, and then I'll talk a little bit more about Ampula, it. The Archbishop of Canterbury is to anoint Her Majesty with the sign of the cross. From the Royal Gallery, her son, Prince Charles, watches the sacred consecration. Following her anointing, the Queen is now able to receive the emblems of majesty. About her is placed the Colobium Sindonis, a shimmering gown of pure gold, together with a girdle. The Queen returns to King Edward's chair, there to receive her royal regalia. So, did you catch it? Did you see it? They didn't even show it, right? Well, what took place is they had uh, the Arch Canterbury. He, he had a spoon, and he had the oil, the anointing oil, and he poured some in a spoon, and he took his fingers with that, and he did the mark of the cross um, on her. And so the importance of that, the heritage of that, actually what we see is biblical from the standpoint of here is an anointed one and here is what was said um, as the priest did this he says as solomon was anointed king by zadok the priest and nathan the prophet so be you anointed blessed and consecrated queen over the peoples whom the lord thy god has given thee to rule and govern what I want to do now is take you to that passage in 1 Kings that they're referencing uh, there so that we can see. Let's look at Solomon and his coronation and his anointing. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we see... That uh, David is old, he's advanced in years, and, uh, and so verse 28 says, Then king, the king David answered, he called Bathsheba to, to me. So she came to the king's presence and stood before the king. The king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne and in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoadan. And they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gahan. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet, and say, Long live King Solomon. And you shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be, my, be king in my place. And I have anointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Benaiah and the son of Jehoadan answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, 
the king say so. And the Lord has been with my Lord, the king. Even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, David. So Zadok, the priest, and Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherisites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gahan. And there Zadok, the priest, took the horn of the oil from the tent and anointed Solomon then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. What we see is this great celebration that now King David, advanced in years, would anoint his son. And we see, and you would read, there is friction in the kingdom because David chose Solomon versus one of his other sons. And we know that's because of the promise of David's sin and the consequence of his sin, that his house would be divided. And yet, even in the midst of that consequence, God is faithful to his word. He is faithful because he has promised to David um, that his line would be forever. So in 2 Samuel... We see this promise, 2 Samuel verse, chapter 7, verses 13 through 16. The Lord's covenant with David. God said, he, will, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And then you flip over to the book of Psalms, Psalm verse 89. And in Psalm verse 89, verses 1 and 2, we see, we see verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, that I will establish your offspring forever and will build your throne for all generations. And then we, we slip down to verse 20. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. So that my hand shall establish with him, and my arm also shall strengthen him. Then we go down to verses 36 and 37. His offspring, David's offspring, shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, and the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness to the skies. What we see is through this son of Jesse, from this little town called Bethlehem, a great-grandson of Ruth... Ruth showing the faithfulness of God that through the genealogies that are recorded in Matthew and in Luke, we see this through this shepherd, songwriter, musician, and soon to be what we've read, King David, that God was going to use him and his throne for all of eternity, that his throne would endure forever. And so when we look at David, and we saw Solomon in his 
coronation and his anointing, we know part of the story goes bleak after that. Israel turns from worshiping God and following God. There are very many bad kings. The kingdom is divided and split. And then there is the great, uh, the great division, not only amongst uh, the people, but there is an exile. And so the people of Israel have lost this idea and this celebration of Solomon when they're so loud and the worship is so great that the, the text tells us that this, the earth split. You talk about a rock and party. Like that was something. And, and, and yet we read throughout the Old Testament of the exile and the people of Israel they're always brought back to, the prophets would always bring the people back to the hope of David's line. David's throne would remain. We see this in the book of Ezekiel, that the prophet Ezekiel would record this and say in Ezekiel 34, the people, again, the people are dispersed. They've lost hope of their nation and their people and their God. And yet Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24. He says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince amongst them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. David's dead. How can David be their king again? Ezekiel is trying to bring them back to the hope of the promise that God had given them. That even though they're in exile and David's been dead for 400 years, there is hope. The hope is set that one day there will be a new king. That this king will be a descendant from David and he will rule over God's people. This is what we see in the prophet Isaiah. A familiar verse, a familiar passage that is used often at Christmas. This text, Isaiah, the prophet, may have written it to a newborn prince at that time, sharing it at the coronation. Maybe it was another king that he was sharing it to, but we see the pointing of Jesus in Isaiah 9 when he says this, for to us, a child is born and a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would any earthly king meet all of these requirements? No. Hope came to Mary. And in Luke 1, verses 30 through 33, we see the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you and he you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. So through the prophet Nathan and David, there is a promise. We see Ezekiel and Isaiah share the hope and the titles of this coming king. And then we see here the angel say to Mary, this child, this one born from you, the birth of the Messiah took place in this way. Matthew says, the long-awaited king has come. So the incarnation, Jesus coming in flesh to fulfill the promise, the hope, the titles given for the king of Israel, the anointed one, the descendant of David who would rule forever. Why is it critical that God would come to this earth in human form? It's because we needed a savior. Israel needed a fulfillment of the king. What was interesting as I continued my study, and I'll try to walk through this quickly. Just as we saw the anointing of the kings, I began to think about Jesus' anointing. In Luke, he writes later in Luke 7, verses 36 through 38, he says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. A woman of the city probably a prostitute, washes Jesus' feet with her tears and the hair on her head. She then anoints his feet with an ointment from an alabaster flask. Quite different than the scene that we saw of Queen Elizabeth, isn't it? See, Jesus wasn't going to come like every other king. But just as Solomon wrote on a donkey, on the foal, so Jesus would enter on a donkey. See, Jesus as the king, it looks way different. And we can miss these important and critical aspects of what we read in the, New, in the Old Testament and New Testament. There's some debate about uh, these accounts and these two other accounts that I'm going to read for you. Some scholars believe that they're all one. I actually believe that they're all different, that there's three different accounts. I believe this account here that we read of this woman, the prostitute who washes Jesus' feet. Scriptures tell us that she anoints only his feet, not his head. 
and she stands behind him. And that they are in the home of Simon the Pharisee, which means they would be in Galilee. The second account that we see of an anointing on Jesus is found in John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 3 says, Mary therefore took a pound because they're in the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Mary took therefore a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Again, there's some commonalities, but there are some differences too. We won't take the time to look at all of them. Mark chapter 14, verse 3, Mark's account is this. While they were in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves, why is this anointment wasted like that? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says down in verse 8, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before, beforehand for burial. We see this also in Matthew's account in Matthew 26, verses 6 and 7. When Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Again, the disciples saw it, and all of them speak up. Why this waste? Jesus says this in verse 12, And pouring out the ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So not only do we see Jesus' anointing as the king, but we see something very tragic. It shows us the coming death of the king. Jesus is the anointed king, and yet he would die. Why would he die? Because he died for us as his children. He would take our place, but he wouldn't stay dead. God sent Jesus, the Son, as the King of Israel and of all people so that we might see him, that we would know him, to trust and believe in him, to live for him, enjoy him, and to share him. We know that Jesus went to the cross and he died for us and so Let's look at this coronation because Jesus, like we've already seen, did things differently. Mark records for us in Mark 15, verse 2, says, Pilate asked Jesus as he was on trial, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you have said so. Then we look down to verse 12. And Pilate said again to him, then what shall I do with this man as he's talking to the crowd, this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. In verse 16 through 20 of Mark 15, and then the soldiers led him away inside the palace. 
that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. They compelled the passerbyer Simon of Cyrene. He carried his cross in verse 26. The inscription of the charge against Jesus read this, the king of the Jews. We believe that Jesus died. Think of that. Think of the coronation, the king of all kings, as we read in scripture, that this is his coming. This, this, is, this is the point where he says, okay, here's the king of the Jews. And what is shown? His death. His dignity was stripped of him. What was owed to him from the line of David and his heritage. He had every right to have the throne of David and to have the, the millions of people come and bow at his feet. And to be anointed with oil in the same way that Solomon was. Jesus had all authority as a human man from the lineage of David. But he chose to humble himself. He was obedient to the father. He was obedient to the point of death. Jesus died. He was buried and he rose again. We celebrate Easter. Every Easter we celebrate that Jesus has risen from the dead. Not only did Jesus raise from the dead and he conquered sin and death, but we believe that he is also going to return and that there will be a final triumph of the king of kings. And that's why I want to read for you from the book of Revelation, verse 19. Because Jesus' death wasn't the end. His resurrection from the dead wasn't the end. His appearance to those who were following him was not the end. His ascension into heaven is not the end. We read in Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and, on, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following on him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our Jesus. That's the one who came and became flesh for you and for me. John finishes his writing in Revelation in chapter 22, verse 16. 
And he writes and records these words of Jesus, where Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, Isaiah 11. Look it up, read it. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's our king. When Jesus was here on this earth and he walked the face of this earth, how did he talk about his kingdom? What did he ask of those who were followers of his kingdom? How could you become part of his kingdom? Those are all important questions that we must answer. You become part of his kingdom by humbling yourself. It's by grace through faith. It is because of the grace of God we have the opportunity to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. To become part of his kingdom. Jesus says that we are to deny ourselves. We are to take up our cross. That we are crucified with him. But the life we now live, we live by faith in him. We let our light shine so that others may see and be driven to the king and his kingdom. That is why he taught us to pray. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. And where he says in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. So let me ask you, as we think about this incarnation of Jesus, the coming of God to the face of this earth, how does it matter to you? When you claim Jesus as king, when you call him Messiah or Christ, is your allegiance to him? Let me propose to you this day that maybe, maybe we need to start each day falling on our knees and pledging our lives to him as king. Our allegiance, our deepest devotion, and our greatest commitment should be to him. He has called us to be light and salt, showing and preserving the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, not yours and mine. Is your allegiance to Jesus the king? God came to earth to fulfill the prophecies. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Is he your king? Not just through word, not just in your mind. Is your allegiance and your commitment and your devotion to Jesus as king as it would be to any other king if put physically before you? I pray that as we've seen the evidence of Jesus as king, that we will be totally 100% committed and that again each day we would fall on our knees and proclaim our allegiance to him would you pray with me Lord thank you for your word thank you that through the line of David 
that this man's offspring God brought to Israel and to us a Savior, Jesus the Christ. Zechariah recorded for us the prophecy of the king coming. He will be upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was Jesus. He fulfilled all the things that were, that were required for him to be the king and to have the ownership and the right to the throne of David. May we celebrate that this day. May it change the way that we see you, Lord, as our God. May it change our devotion and our commitment. And may we start each day proclaiming Jesus as our King. Following and trusting Him. Being committed and aligned to what He wants for us. We owe you our lives, Lord. Jesus, we owe you everything that we have. Thank you for giving us all that we enjoy. The most critical and important aspect is that we could be called children of God because of what you've done for us in your death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus, you didn't deserve how you were treated. You deserve so much more. Lord, I look at my life and you deserve so much more than what I give you. And so, Lord, we humbly come asking that you would forgive us for when we set our sights on our kingdom. And may you help us by the spirit of the living God that abides in us as your followers. May you guide us and direct us and may we be true to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords, Jesus, the Christ, our Messiah. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.